Hey, everybody. You've heard me mention the Cafe Insider membership. Well, now we're excited to tell you that it's launching this Monday, November 19th. That's Monday, November 19th. Members will get a new weekly podcast, a newsletter, text alerts, and even bonus content from Stay Tuned. You may already have heard the first episode of the new Cafe Insider podcast. We released it for free last week, and it features me and my co-host Ann Milgram talking about the news surrounding Sessions, Whitaker, and the Mueller investigation. We hope you enjoyed it, and you can look out for a new episode of the Cafe Insider podcast coming this Monday as part of the new membership program. For more information, enter your email at cafe.com slash preet. Again, that's cafe.com slash preet. Now on with the show. From Cafe, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. I think the greatest threat is, you know, what Mueller was hired to investigate, which is at least the possibility that the sitting president of the United States has a possible covert relationship with Russia, a hostile power. That is something that goes so far beyond Nixon, I can't begin to tell you. That's Michael Beschloss, historian, deep thinker on the American presidency, and author of the new book, Presidents of War. I speak with him about what we should learn from the past, how to assess a president, and what book Trump should read if he did such things. That's coming up. Stay tuned. So tonight in Washington, D.C. is the next stop on our fall tour. I look forward to seeing everyone at the Lincoln Theater with special guest Chuck Todd. Support for tonight's live show in D.C. is brought to you by the new Showtime documentary series, Enemies, The President, Justice, and the FBI. We're excited to show our audience a clip from the series this evening. But if D.C. is not convenient, hopefully we'll see you in two weeks in Los Angeles, where we'll be live with Kumail Nanjiani. For tickets to the November 29th show in L.A., go to cafe.com slash tour. That's cafe.com slash T-O-U-R. Okay, let's get to your questions. This one comes from an email from Anna Benassi, who asks, One thing I'd like to hear discussed, what could have motivated Jeff Sessions to comply with Trump's demand for his resignation? Do you have any intel and or theories about why Sessions should kowtow to the president's last official act of abuse against him? So, you know, it's all speculation. And until Jeff Sessions has his uh, big interview on 60 Minutes or on the Today Show and decides to talk about it, we won't know. I found it interesting through the last number of months that Jeff Sessions continued to stay in the job, even though he had been humiliated and taunted by his boss, the president of the United States, on Twitter in public fashion. Uh, As you all know, if you listen to the show, when I was asked for my resignation, I refused to give it and insisted on being fired so there would be a clear record. And if there was anything nefarious about it, that there would be accountability. I'm not alleging that there was, but I think it's sometimes good to have a clear record of who wanted you gone and why. I think it's possible that in in some fashion, Jeff Sessions tried to have it a little bit of both ways. So he gets asked for his resignation. He submits it, but then makes it very clear in the letter that the resignation was requested by the president. And so it could be that Jeff Sessions, in his own unique, peculiar way, thought that he was maintaining some amount of dignity by tendering a letter of resignation while making it clear that it was requested of him. I don't share that view. I would not have done it that way, but to each his own. The other thing is, it's worth noting that the question of whether or not he was fired or resigned, you know, can have some bearing on the question of whether or not President Trump could replace him 
with Matt Whitaker in an acting capacity because there's a statute that speaks to that, which you know people have opined on. I don't know that it matters that much. But, but there is some legal debate on the effect of someone being fired, thereby causing a vacancy that's the result of conduct by the president as opposed to some happenstance emergency vacancy caused by someone leaving office to be with their family or through death or incapacitation or something else. I don't know that Jeff Sessions had that in mind. I, I tend to doubt it, that he was trying to you know, smooth the path for a successor. Because among other things, the reporting has been that Jeff Sessions has felt betrayed by first having Matt Whitaker imposed upon him as his chief of staff by the White House, which is what the reporting says, and it seems to make sense to me, and also underestimated the degree to which Matt Whitaker was kind of auditioning for the job while Jeff Sessions was still in office. So it's my personal opinion, and that's all it is, that Jeff Sessions thought this was ultimately, at the end of the day, the classy way for him to go. This next question comes in a tweet, and lots of folks have been asking questions related to this issue. This one is from Rob Meyerson, who asks, how does Whitaker's appointment to head DOJ work? How does it differ from nomination confirmation process and succession plan, which goes to Deputy A.G. Rosenstein? So obviously, this is a question that has been occupying the minds and thinking of lots of legal scholars, but also is important to everyone in the country, because it matters who heads the Justice Department, whether it's someone in a permanent position or in an acting capacity, like Matt Whitaker. And the question is, was the appointment of Matt Whitaker, whereby the president bypassed all sorts of Senate-confirmed people in the department who are seasoned, who have a sense of continuity, who have expertise, like the deputy attorney general, like the solicitor general, like the assistant attorneys general who had various enormous, significant departments within the DOJ, all of them were bypassed for Matt Whitaker. And so to my mind, even before you get to the legal question of was it lawful, was it constitutional, it seems unwise and sends a terrible message that the only thing that appears to distinguish Matt Whitaker above all these other people who historically, and my view is based on the law and the constitution, should have been the ones considered to replace Sessions. The only thing that distinguishes him is that he has been a vocal critic in writing and on the air of the Mueller investigation. So, so right away, on the question of whether or not it was a good idea, I think it was not. Okay, so now on the legal question, literally as I was walking to the studio here mid-morning on Wednesday, the Department of Justice released a 20-page detailed single-space memo, which I've tried quickly to digest, and I don't have, I don't have it all digested yet, First of all, it comes from the Office of Legal Counsel, from a Senate-confirmed Assistant Attorney General, Stephen Engel, who is a smart lawyer. My observation about the memo is, A, it's long. Length doesn't necessarily say anything about the quality of the arguments made, but on what should be a fairly simple question of whether or not the appointment was lawful, sometimes length suggests weakness. In reading the document, and I haven't seen what other people have said about it yet, it reads rather weak and defensive. It relies on precedent that's fairly outdated. There are a lot of examples that are given, most of which, almost all of which, happened before 1870, which doesn't make them meaningless, but it does make them weaker. Now, the Office of Legal Counsel is supposed to be in the business of being sort of the last word on what is the law and the correct interpretation of the Constitution for the executive branch. And in many instances, it does that. This, however, has that feel like some OLC memos historically have, of trying to explain something after the stuff has hit the fan. So at the risk of boring you all a little bit on the legal issues at hand in the Whitaker appointment, 
there are essentially three legal authorities that get discussed and addressed and debated. One is the Vacancies Reform Act, which gives some guidance as to who can replace someone when there is a vacancy. The second is a more particular statute that describes succession within the Justice Department. It's a statute, Section 508. And the third is something that you probably have heard of. It's called the Constitution, in which there is something called the Appointments Clause. And so in a fairly tortured way, based on my quick reading, the OLC memo suggests that the Vacancies Reform Act allows a president to appoint someone to a vacancy, even at the head of an agency, uh, in an acting capacity, so long as that person has merely been in the department for 90 days in the past year, which is true of most of the breathing people at the Department of Justice. There is, I think, better authority that the Constitution makes clear that if you're going to have somebody be a what's called a, a principal officer and not an inferior officer, that person could only be appointed after some period of advice and consent by the Senate, which is why the memo itself acknowledges throughout history, since the beginning of the Republic, they could find only, I think, one instance where an attorney general was replaced on an interim or acting basis by someone who was not Senate confirmed already. And I believe that occurred in 1866. So it's a weak presidential argument. What is also interesting is separate and apart from the particular arguments made, the kinds of people who have flatly stated that the appointment of Whitaker is illegal and or unconstitutional. One of those people, by the way, is John Yu, who you may remember from some years ago, who used to be at the Office of Legal Counsel himself, who is responsible for a period of our history in legal analysis for justifying certain kinds of torture. So when you've lost John Yu on a constitutional principle, I think you've lost a very serious conservative voice who in the past has gone out of his way to say the executive has incredibly broad powers to do what he or she wants. Another note on John Yu's analysis in a minute. But the central point here, for those of you who are not lawyers, and it's a, a point I've made in other circumstances and contexts, and it's this. They're very smart lawyers on all sides of every question. And I have made arguments that I know were weaker than the stronger arguments, but you have a client to serve, and so you make the argument. Just because an argument can be made that is not complete nonsense doesn't mean it's the argument that should prevail. Now, private parties do this all the time. You sue someone, and you make an argument, and sometimes the judge might buy your terrible argument. And so that's why you often make it. You also you know, have an ethical obligation as an attorney at the bar to make those arguments. My view of the Justice Department is higher, that if you're at the Office of Legal Counsel or you're in the U.S. Attorney's Office, you should not just be defending actions that are taken that are uh, able to be criticized and justifiably denigrated, but decide what the best interpretation of the law is and give that guidance. So I'm not one of those who says that this memo is complete trash, although I think that has a lot of weaknesses. But if you're going to make a decision that has grave consequences, and in this case that includes who leads the Justice Department, not just for purposes of overseeing the Mueller investigation, but for purposes of, of making sure that the rule of law is upheld and that equal justice before the law is something true for everyone in every jurisdiction, in every state, in the country, then you should be on very, very solid footing, legally, constitutionally, ethically, optically, I think. You know, the, the, the other context in which I make this point that not everyone loves is with respect to the question of whether or not 
Bob Mueller might indict a sitting president. And that's the other time that the OLC office has come into play, and we've talked about it. So there is an OLC opinion that's still operative that says a sitting president cannot be prosecuted. There are arguments to be made that that's not right. And there are arguments that smart people have put forward to say, Constitution actually says, for this reason and this other reason and this third reason, that the president should be subject to prosecution if he's committed crimes and there's evidence of it. My point only is, when you have something with such high stakes, where the whole country is watching, and the consequences of taking some action really can cause tremendous upheaval and cause tremendous undermining of people's confidence in institutions, you don't undertake that lightly. And you don't do it based on a minority view or weak reasoning. And that's why I think Mueller you know, won't indict a sitting president and probably should not. And in this completely different context, I think the same is true in the other direction. The arguments in favor of appointing Whitaker legally and constitutionally are weak, and it shouldn't be done. So, you know, if you're having a hard time following the arguments about the Vacancies Reform Act and the Appointments Clause and this other statute that talks about DOJ succession, I wouldn't worry about it that much. That'll be resolved potentially with respect to this lawsuit that the state of Maryland has with the Justice Department that you may have read about. Um, Lawyers will argue all sides of this. Some of the lawyers on all sides will sound reasonable, and they will have some precedents to put forward. And they will have some people on their side on certain, in certain op-ed pages. But putting all of that aside, your common sense as a citizen tells you that the appointment of Whitaker stinks to high heaven. And now back to that footnote about the John Yu piece. He says very interestingly in a piece in The Atlantic that in some ways the appointment of Whitaker, even if he tries to interfere with the Mueller investigation, has done Bob Mueller a favor. How can that be? Well... If Rod Rosenstein had attempted to stymie the investigation or turn down a request for resources or put the kibosh on bringing an indictment against somebody, that would have been well within Rod Rosenstein's authority, authority that Bob Mueller acquiesced in and respected and that everyone else did also. It was very clear that Rod Rosenstein was properly exercising supervisory authority over Bob Mueller and his investigation. Now the question comes... What if Matt Whitaker tries to interfere or stymie the investigation or starve it of resources, tells Bob Mueller to stand down on on one thing or the other? Well, John Yu suggests, and it's interesting, Bob Mueller may have now a basis to say it's an unauthorized order because you are not properly installed as my supervisor, as the acting attorney general. And I can defy it, and we can argue about it in court. Interesting point. Well worth watching. My guest this week is Michael Beschloss. He's a commentator and historian with deep knowledge of the American presidency. He's the author of nine books, including most recently, Presidents of War, the epic story from 1807 to modern times. I talked to him about why and how presidents start wars, how to assess the Trump presidency, and why history should matter to our elected leaders. And we talk about his wonderful, shady Twitter feed. That's coming up. Stay tuned. If you've been thinking about getting a Simply Safe home security system, but you've been waiting for the holidays when all the tech deals come out, well, good call. Because right now there are great deals on Simply Safe. Order today and you can get 25% off any new Simply Safe system. That's a pretty sweet deal. 
and an affordable way to get great protection for your home and family. Simply Safe never makes you sign a contract. There are no hidden fees. And with Simply Safe, around the clock professional monitoring is just $14.99 a month. Simply Safe is the smart home alarm system that's easy to set up and easy to use. You choose the features, hardware, and service that's right for you. And its elegant, streamlined design will blend right into your home decor. Protect your home today and get a great deal on home security. Go to simplysafe.com/preet and save 25% off your Simply Safe system. Make sure you use that URL so they know we sent you. And you might want to get on that soon. This deal ends November 26th. That's simplysafe.com/preet. simplysafe.com/preet. So here's an understatement. Life insurance isn't the most enjoyable thing to think about because and this is generally true Most people don't like to think about dying. But actually, having life insurance is a really good feeling. Instead of selfishly focusing on your own mortality, you can think about how your family would be okay financially if anything happened to you. And you can find your life insurance through Policy Genius. Policy Genius is the easy way to get life insurance online. In just 2 minutes, you can compare quotes from the top insurers to find the best policy for you. When you compare quotes, you save money. It's that simple. And they don't just make life insurance easy. They also compare disability insurance, auto insurance, and home insurance. If you care about it, they can cover it. So if you've been avoiding getting life insurance because it's difficult or confusing or just depressing, give Policy Genius a try. Just go to policygenius.com, get your quotes, and apply in minutes. You can do the whole thing on your phone right now, or maybe after you finish listening to the show. Policy Genius, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. Michael Beschloss, thank you so much for being on the show. Thrilled to be with you, Preet. Thank you. Congratulations on the book. You wrote this book called Presidents of War: The Epic Story from 1807 to Modern Times. It's a big thick book. I just finished writing a book. It's not quite as long cuz I'm not as smart as you. <laughs> you didn't have 10 years to take. <laughs> no, it was a little over a year and we're not finished, but it, uh, it took a lot it took a lot out of me. I have new respect for people who uh, not only write one book, but have written many. So w- I don't know where to begin with you, honestly. You know so many things about so many issues. I guess I wonder from you what the difference between history and journalism is. You're somebody who's written books about the long sweep of history in many different contexts currently with respect to the relationship between presidents and war. But you also go on television, like I do, and you talk about the news of the day. And I wonder how you resolve that and how you think about that and well the way i do it is everything i write in history and i've been writing history books since i was 23 years old believe it or not i try to write on subjects that have you know shed some light on problems that we all are dealing with as a democracy at the same time i think the difference between history and journalism for instance as you know this book goes through 200 years of war presidents from uh thomas jefferson all the way up to nearly the present it doesn't deal with George W. Bush in Iraq and Afghanistan, not because I wouldn't have loved to, because those are great examples of wars that bring up all sorts of different issues. But I think if you're writing about a past president, if it's more recent than about 40 years ago, you can't really write about it as history because you don't have the sources you need. For instance, if I were to write about George W. Bush, I wouldn't have his cable traffic, you know, the intelligence stuff that came to his desk. 
maybe if there were diaries, if there were memcons. So I couldn't really write about, you know, what he did from the inside, which is what I try to do. And the other thing is that you really need hindsight. I mean, the classic example I always use is that when Harry Truman left the presidency, 1953, his Gallup poll approval rating was about maybe 23%. And that was because there were a lot of things that people didn't understand about Truman's greatness at the time, especially the fact that he was the guy who devised the strategy that allowed us to win the Cold War. You couldn't know how the Cold War would end in 1953. With 2020 hindsight, here we are, what, 65 years later. We now know that America prevailed. Truman gets a lot of credit. So with that kind of hindsight, he's a much greater president. So that's sort of the difference I see between writing about history and writing about almost current events. What's an interesting footnote is his Gallup poll number was in the 20s, as you said, but um, I believe that his Rasmussen poll was 80, 85%. <laughs> yes, exactly right, Rasmussen. <laughs> that's that's uh, an inside joke for poll watchers. Famous a really wonderful indication of uh, public opinion, don't you think, Preet? <laughs> Look, not all the polls can be right all the time. No. So I guess, so that's an interesting point, though, given that you wear both hats of historical writer and also uh, current commentator, because you have strong opinions on, on this president and things that he's done. And you make you know pretty bold declarations, as do I, although I'm not a, a journalist or a historian. How should people be careful about the pronouncements they're making day to day about the actions of, of any sitting president? They should know that 40 or 50 years later, Americans will probably look at them very differently in ways that we cannot anticipate. 40 or 50 years later, you siphon away the less important from those things that are important. For instance, using Truman in 1952, a lot of the people who told pollsters they didn't like Truman, they said the reason was because he didn't remind them of Franklin Roosevelt. He didn't really seem like a president. In fact, the true story is told that 52 Eisenhower and Nixon were running as the Republican nominees and a reporter asked Truman, what do you think of Nixon? And Truman said, I think that Nixon is full of manure. And so that was printed. <laughs> And so Truman's aides went to Mrs. Truman and said, couldn't you get the boss to clean it up and speak a little bit more like a president? She said, you have no idea how, how long it took for me to get him to use the word manure. That's what she was dealing with. <laughs> but the point I'm making is 1952, it seemed like a big deal whether Truman used language like that. Decades later, we realized that what he did you know, with the atomic bomb and his economic policies and firing MacArthur, these are things that were much more important. So some of it's out of the president's control, right? So you engage in a policy, whether it's the Cold War or a certain kind of tax policy, and if some years later you can attribute some great advancement of peace or prosperity to that action taken years earlier where it was unclear whether it would be successful or not, then that changes dramatically the view of that president, right? Yeah, it's like something that Truman once said, which he was absolutely right. He said that any high school student with 2020 hindsight 40 years later can make better decisions than a president can make operating at the time with fragmentary information and dealing with a lot of different issues at once. Well, so that leads me to a couple of different questions, one forward-looking and one backward-looking. How much do presidents care about how they will be perceived 40 years hence, and how much should they? I don't get the sense this president cares about anything other than how he's perceived tomorrow. Uh, or maybe during the next hour. Or maybe during the next hour. But there's also something to be said, I think, for not caring too much 
about your legacy in the history books and caring a little bit more about the medium term, if not the short term? Doing the right thing. That's exactly right. The last thing you want is someone who just wants to be popular all the time because they're not going to make unpopular decisions like the ones that Truman made or the ones that Lincoln made to win the Civil War or FDR in 1940. If he had wanted to be popular, he would have said, I'm an isolationist like probably the majority of Americans, and I will promise you we will never get involved in World War II. That's what happens when you've got a demagogue. And with our current president, you certainly see a lot of elements of that. But I used to say, Preet, before this presidency, I would never want a president who was not interested in history, and almost all of them are. Because if you're a president who knows nothing about history and doesn't care, you know, there are not many things to guide you when you're president, you're trying to make tough decisions, because, you know, you're usually tired, and you don't have enough information, and you're dealing with all sorts of people and issues all at once. Just about the only user's guide you've got is where earlier presidents and earlier generations of Americans succeeded or failed. Is it also possible to overlearn from history? Uh, I think if you think that, you know, decisions, for instance, that earlier presidents made are exact parallels for the ones that you're making. But if you do it, for instance, you know, I keep on, sorry to keep on coming back to Truman, but it's a good example of it, because I think Truman, although he was not a college graduate, probably knew more about presidential history than just about anyone else who has served. And maybe particularly because he didn't have the education, he was trying harder. And he used to say that I couldn't have been president without knowing what some of these earlier presidents did. And he was a huge reader of history. In fact, the book that he liked most of all, horrible title, it was written in 1895. It was called Great Men and Famous Women. The premise being that women had no (laughs) hope of being great, only famous. And the subtitle was From Nebuchadnezzar to Sarah Bernhardt. So you can see Preet covered wide swath of human history. That's a broad range. Broad range. Uh, And I don't think he he often thought about Nebuchadnezzar or Sarah Bernhardt, but he used to say, when I was trying to think about what to do with the atom bomb or what to do in Korea, I would think about what I had read, particularly in that book about Abraham Lincoln or Andrew Jackson. It was never an exact parallel, but there were some areas of what they had to deal with that gave me some comfort and some insight so that I could go ahead. In fact, can I mention one, one other yeah, example? Please. JFK and the Cuban Missile Crisis, 1962. Fortunately for all of us, just before then, he read a book that I'm sure you've read, read Barbara Tuckman's Guns of August. It's a signed reading in most colleges if you were a political science or government major. I'm glad to hear it. And I was a political science major. It was assigned to us too at Williams College. The lesson of that, as you well know, is basically... World War I happened because there were a lot of miscommunications between the sides that were about to go to war. So Kennedy had just read that before he's going to the Cuban Missile Crisis. And what better lesson would you want in his head than exactly that? Because during the Missile Crisis, you know, he he keeps on saying, I want to make sure that some lower level person in the Defense Department doesn't put out some statement that's going to convince the Soviets and Khrushchev that we're about to do a first strike attack mistakenly, and we get into a nuclear war accidentally that could kill 100 million people, incinerate much of the Northern Hemisphere. That's the way history really can guide a president at an absolutely paramount time. This may be not a well-articulated question. 
And these things may not be distinguishable and they overlap. But if you had to pick which of the following qualities is most important to a president to do the job properly, you know, one is a good grasp of history. Another is good judgment. And the third is is good character. Which is the most important? Because they are a little bit different. Yeah, they are different, but I think I would say that's a three-way tie. <laughs> I have never seen a great president that does not have those things. And also, I would add to that, and this is a part of character, empathy. Lincoln, in the middle of the Civil War, there were so many soldiers being killed because of the decisions that he was he was making. His people said, we need a new national cemetery. Where do you want it? And Lincoln said, build it next to my summer house because... It's going to be intensely painful to me, but I want to see the union graves being dug. I want to see the grieving widows. I want to see the crying. I want to always be reminded of the real life results and death results of the decisions I'm making. That's what empathy is. That's what you really want to see in a president. You need balance, right? Because you can be paralyzed by empathy because you don't want to cause harm in the short term, even though it might cause longer term good and peace. And Lincoln, obviously, you know, even if you haven't read a lot of history, if you've watched any movies, you know that he spoke very movingly, not only in public, but also in the letters that he wrote to the families of fallen soldiers, which is a great distinction between him and the current president, who to date has not even visited any troops. Not been to see troops, not been to a base, not been to Iraq or Afghanistan, and also has sent troops to the border in a reality show that doesn't have too much connection to re real life reality. I mean, it, it is something that we have rarely, if ever, seen in presidential history. Which, which presidents do you think in recent times have had the best grasp of history? I think Kennedy did. Kennedy wrote history. Truman, as I've mentioned. Roosevelt tried. I mean, he was not as much of a history reader, but remember I was saying about Kennedy, it's a good thing he read Guns of August. Right. Well, FDR, as it happens, sometimes God looks over the United States. In 1940, the year before we got into World War II, what is Roosevelt reading? He's reading a biography of Abraham Lincoln by Carl Sandburg. And it gave him a lot of the lessons that Lincoln used to help prevail in the Civil War. And one of them was, you know, I think maybe the cardinal lesson for any president of war, and that is you have to be a moral leader you can't just wage a war for cheap political reasons. And for instance, in Lincoln's case, as I write about, he got into the Civil War, as we know, and he tried to talk about this as he was just fulfilling his oath to defend the Constitution. Constitution says that states cannot secede, the South seceded, so he was trying to reverse that. It didn't make him a very effective leader, and he really wasn't saying what was in his heart. And finally, about a year into the Civil War, it's almost like the moment, you know, you've seen The Wizard of Oz when it turns from black and white to color. Yeah. You know, it was almost like that. You know, Lincoln starts, you know, he basically stops talking about, you know, his oath and the Constitution. He starts talking about this as a crusade to get rid of the evil of slavery. The second that happens, this becomes a moral crusade and he becomes a more effective leader and the soldiers know what they're fighting for. And it actually was the right thing to do in terms of winning the war. That was a lesson that was in FDR's mind. Early 1941, he's talking to Congress, and he talks about the four freedoms, you know, the things that 
America supports in the world. Freedom from want, freedom of religion, and so on. And so from the very beginning of our involvement in December of 1941, after Pearl Harbor, this is not just, you know, something to restore the balance of power in Europe and Asia. This is a moral crusade to preserve freedom in the world, which it was. And it made Roosevelt a much more effective leader. And the other thing is he had been Wilson's assistant secretary of the Navy. He knew how bad it was for Wilson to be in this kingly isolation for the first year of World War I. He didn't make that mistake. He gave those fireside chats saying, we may have some defeats for a while, but I want to level with you Americans and let you know what we're doing. These stories of serendipitous books that presidents have read or have read serendipitously is interesting to me. And I wonder how you would respond to the following question, uh, in part because it assumes a fact, not an evidence. And that is, if it were the case that Donald Trump read books, what book do you think at this point, given how we're facing issues with Russia and North Korea and a whole host of other international problems, what book should he be reading if he read books? Uh, it's not a book. I would love to have him read the Constitution and maybe you could be his tutor. <laughs> Any president no. who understands the Constitution could not have done many of the things that he has been doing. And that is true of other presidents, by the way. I mean, in a more minor way, I think. I write about James Polk, for instance. As you know, one of the things the founders in Philadelphia were really concerned about was that the people who would decide whether we get into a major war or not would not be presidents, but members of Congress. And they basically say, you want a war declared? Congress does that, not a president. And one theme we've seen in history, and I'm extremely worried that Donald Trump will be tempted to do this, is we've seen a number of presidents stage fake incidents or exploit fake incidents to get us involved in a major war. James Polk, 1840s. He wanted privately a big war with Mexico because he wanted to take from Mexico almost a million square miles of Mexican territory and bring it to the United States. What he did was, and I write about it, he staged a fake incident at the border. Does that sound current to you, Preet? Um, it rings a bell. Uh, unfortunately. But in Polk's case, he provoked the Mexicans to attack some of Zachary Taylor's soldiers. And then Polk went to Congress and said, there's been this horrible attack on us by the Mexicans. We need a major war against Mexico all the way down to Mexico City, which he waged. It was an illegal war. And there was a young congressman who rose on the floor of the House, 1847, to say, this is an illegal war. This incident never happened. And the name of that congressman was Abraham Lincoln. Very important for him to have seen this close up, what presidents can do. And then the 1890s, William McKinley, there was the sinking, as you well know, of an American ship called the Maine yes. in Havana Harbor. So I remember Polk the goes Maine. to, well, you remember studying it in any case, and, and <laughs> right. people of the generation were furious about the, of the sinking of the Maine because McKinley and others said it was sunk by Spain. We need a major war against the Spanish. So we got into this major war. We took the Philippines. We changed the government in Cuba. We took Puerto Rico, Guam, other places. And we knew probably at the time, we sure know now, what sank the Maine was not Spain, but was a boiler accident. But I guess you couldn't go to war against boilers. So we went to war against Spain. Again, a war that was not the way the founders wanted. And then the final one that is closer to our time, 
is the Gulf of Tonkin incident in 1964. LBJ hears that there is some ambiguous evidence that the North Vietnamese have done this attack against an American ship. Johnson goes on TV and says, there has been an unprovoked attack, which he knew that if there was an attack, it wasn't unprovoked because we were doing some things there. Gets Congress almost unanimously to allow him to use our armed forces in Southeast Asia. He quickly finds out privately there was never any attack, but in terms of the legality of all this, which you're particularly concerned with, for almost 10 years, Johnson and Nixon waged this war in Southeast Asia, kills almost 60,000 Americans, maybe a million Vietnamese, based on an attack that never happened, and they never disclosed this. Where then in the spectrum do you place the war in Iraq, which was based on non-existent weapons of mass destruction in that country? That's an example, as I was saying earlier, I can't really talk about yet as history, uh, but I'll tell you the questions that will be asked. The question that will be asked is, did George W. Bush know that there was a, a very serious chance that there were not weapons of mass destruction? That's something we will know in 35 years. Right now, it's ambiguous. And the other thing is that can a case be made that this was the right thing to do? We will know that in decades because we will know what the Middle East looks like. We will look know what what used to be called the war of, uh, against terrorism looks like. And I guess as a historian, I have to be a little bit careful there because, you know, I cannot tell you exactly, you know, what the outcome will be. Right. Well, fair enough. You know, not to complicate it further, because we've been just talking about presidents. But, uh, you know, some people think that the Bush presidency was actually a co-presidency. And you raise the question of what Bush knew about the quality of the evidence and the intelligence in Iraq. And there was another person who some people refer to as President Cheney. How do you or how does history assess the excellence or lack of excellence of a president in terms of how he is served by those around him? I mean, there's the, fa the other famous books, since we're talking about famous books about going to war, the best and the brightest. And there was a disservice done to a president in connection with those times as well. So how, how do you judge? It all goes on the president because he doesn't have to listen to his advisors, even if the advisor is a very powerful vice president like Dick Cheney, who may well have been and perhaps was the most powerful vice president in history. But for instance, I am very tough on LBJ in Vietnam, especially because, uh, you know, I studied these tapes that he made of his private conversations, almost 700 hours. And the worst one was in 1965, he's talking to his defense secretary, Robert McNamara, who I see as one of the great villains in American history. McNamara had said to LBJ, you must get into the war in Vietnam. President Kennedy would have done it. You'll be letting down your country if you don't do it. And later on, as you'll remember, Preet, uh, McNamara in the 1990s wrote a book basically saying, it wasn't me. I was always skeptical of the Vietnam War from the beginning. I say it's a great thing that LBJ made these secret tapes of his conversations because those were released a little bit later and showed that McNamara had been lying in his book. Without the tapes, we wouldn't know that. But there's a horrible moment in 1965, February, the first month that Johnson was sending American forces off to Vietnam in big numbers, saying we're going to win. In private, he's talking to McNamara and he says, Johnson does, 
I can't think of anything worse than losing the war in Vietnam, and I can't see any way that we can win. And if you and I are, are talking about just about the worst thing a president can do, we can think of a few things, but I can't think of much worse than sending young idealistic Americans off to wage a war, give their lives for a cause that in private, even at the very beginning, secretly, the president thinks there's no hope of winning. Can I ask you this? Do presidents who have military background handle the question of war better and with more restraint than those without military background, or is there no trend? I would feel comforted by a president with a military background for two reasons. Number one, president, you know, let's say Dwight Eisenhower. Dwight Eisenhower kept us out of war seven and a half years. That wasn't by accident. In the mid-1950s, the French withdrew from Vietnam. There was huge pressure on Eisenhower to get us involved in Vietnam. He said no. Because of his life experience, he knew that getting into a land war in Asia would be very difficult. Plus, he had empathy with his soldiers. He had been the one who sent huge numbers of Allied soldiers on D-Day off to die, which he knew in advance. And there's a photograph of Eisenhower in 1952, eight years later, where he's talking about D-Day, and he begins to cry. And Eisenhower is not thought of as an emotional person. He covers his face with a handkerchief because he's so embarrassed to be weeping in public. You find that kind of empathy in a president who's had that kind of experience. But the other thing you want is a president who knows the limitations of the generals. You know, sometimes you hear presidents say, including someone we know, well, I'll just leave it to the generals. It's the worst idea to leave it to the generals. I mean, one of the stories I have in this book is something we didn't really know the full extent of before, which is early 1968, Johnson's general in Vietnam, LBJ's, William Westmoreland comes to him and says, we're stalemated in Vietnam. We might suffer a defeat. I think we should move nuclear weapons into South Vietnam and use them if necessary. And Johnson basically is irate, and he says, absolutely not. If this war goes nuclear, the Russians and the Chinese will come in. We could kill tens of millions of people. There could be a nuclear war. And he ordered all the documents locked up, and and Westmoreland resigned a few months later. This may have been the reason. I want a president who understands that Generals are great in strategy, but they have their limitations, and they're supposed to. I want you, as someone who's written books on the presidency and on war and this book about both those issues, to explain something both to me and to the audience that I don't think is so easily understandable. And that is, who declares war and why every time there's the possibility of armed conflict somewhere, members of the House and Senate get up and say, you have to go through Congress and there are various statutes, including the War Powers Act. There's the Constitution that you mentioned that some people read more than others. Right. But the fact is, historically, that Congress's role in approving war in a forthright, clear way is very limited and hasn't happened very often. Last time Congress declared war was 1942. So is Congress relevant to this at all? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's illegal, the fact that presidents have gotten us into major wars since then without the declaration of war that the Constitution requires. Now, why has that happened? Well, there was a moment in 1950, historically, 
the North Koreans invaded the South, and Truman sent MacArthur and American forces to Korea to defend the South. Great so far. And then Truman's aides say, when are you going to be going to Congress for the war declaration as the Constitution requires? And I love Truman, but I hate him for what he did next. He said, I don't have to go to Congress. I'm just going to tell them to go to hell. And they said, well, why, why won't you go to Congress? And he Eat said, manure. if I go to Congress, and by the way, that, that's a direct quote, the go to hell part. Sounds just like Truman. And Truman says, if I go to Congress, this is the summer of 1950, I will get involved in an acrimonious debate. They'll criticize me and the administration. And about five months from now, I've got to deal with midterms. I will weaken my position. So I'm not going to ask for a war declaration and let them try to stop me. Congress at that point was not going to stop Truman with American forces in harm's way. And what Truman did, in my view, was he established an absolutely horrible precedent because 14 years later, LBJ is asked, you know, when are you going to do the war declaration for Vietnam? Johnson said, Truman didn't do it. I don't have to do it either. And so he gets this terrible Gulf of Tonkin resolution. And that becomes a model for all later presidents. If you don't like Preet the War in Iraq and Afghanistan, that was licensed by a lot of members in Congress, including a lot of Democrats, who were perfectly happy, oftentimes for craven reasons, to vote for a resolution to use force, which is absolutely meaningless, really, in terms of the Constitution, but allowed them to say once a war erupted and once that war became unpopular, a lot of the people who voted for that resolution said, oh, well, I never knew that this was going to lead to war. I was only voting to approve use of force. So my point is, as strong constitutionalists, I won't, I won't speak for you, I feel that we should get back to the habit that the founders require that you have to go for a war declaration. And if that means that we get into fewer wars that are questionable, that may not be supported by Congress or the American people, that's the way it's supposed to happen, in my view. Going forward, if a president wanted to take some action and could do it in the way that modern presidents have without getting a blessing from Congress, in what circumstances in, in real life can you imagine a president going back to Congress like happened in the 40s and, and before? In other words, in what way could a president do that in the future and not look weak? Well, you might have, if you had a strong Congress, and you know, a big part of this, and you were alluding to it, Preet, is that leaders of Congress have oftentimes been lapdogs, especially in wartime. I mean, LBJ, I found uh, he dealt with a majority leader, Mike Mansfield, who hated the war in Vietnam, criticized all the time. Chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, William Fulbright, same thing. I found this was not actually known until my book came out. At the beginning of 68, Fulbright and his colleagues were talking about impeaching LBJ because of his lies and the way he was running the Vietnam War. Compare that to leaders of Congress during Iraq and Afghanistan. They've gotten intimidated. They've gotten people to say, you criticize the president, you're criticizing the soldiers. What the Constitution, what the founders wanted was they always wanted, as you know, as much criticism as possible because that keeps presidents from becoming dictators and it also leads to the best leadership. And the problem we've got now, if I might take one step further, 
you know, you might have a Donald Trump or someone else saying, I want to get us involved in a major war to raise my poll ratings or to divert attention from a Mueller type report or for some other reason. Donald Trump in 2011, a number of times, tweeted predicting that Barack Obama would get the United States into a war in order to get reelected. That's a bad idea to be in the mind of a president. But the point is, that is something that is possible. Presidents in wartime can declare martial law. They can do a lot of other things. So if you were worrying about a president with authoritarian tendencies who may, you know, violate various democratic standards that you and I love, the time to worry about that most of all, from my point of view, is wartime. We've got to be absolutely certain that presidents do not get us into major wars unnecessarily, and especially after fake incidents like what I was talking about with Polk in Mexico or the Maine and Havana Harbor or the Gulf of Tonkin. So that, that's a good segue to bring this into modern times and maybe put on a little bit more of a journalistic hat. So let, let's talk about the current president, Trump. Sure. In his view of war, do you think he's uh, someone who favors war because he favors strength or he's a bellicose guy? Uh, or is it more along the lines of what you're suggesting that for Donald Trump, electorally, it might be a helpful thing to play that way. In other words, it's not clear to me, given all the other ways in which he's bombastic and threatens people, whether he really is interested in having the fight. And I don't just mean, you know, war with actual tanks and weapons. Right. Is he actually interested in winning or is he interested in the distraction? And is he a big bluffer? I think if I had to speculate, I would agree with you that what he's interested in, if necessary, is 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 using armed forces as a way to help himself politically. In, in a much more miniature sense, we've seen that done right before this election. Can you think of many incidents in history where a president has more blatantly exploited our armed forces for political reasons than this little sideshow down at the border just before the midterm election? Well, we had there was a caravan coming, Michael. Yes, the caravan is coming, and I guess because those forces are there, it the moment that the election was over, <laughs> yeah, they stopped them in their tracks, twelve hundred miles south. You know, there will be people who thank God for Donald Trump for having brought that about. Has he been talking about the caravan since the election happened? No, I haven't Shockingly. heard much. No, I so haven't maybe heard. <laughs> it was not so great a threat. You and I do not have the luxury of just hoping that he will not do something like what we've just discussed. We've got to be hawk-like. We've got to be vigilant. We have to sleep with one eye open always and watch him carefully to make sure that there is not the danger that he will do things for political reasons that might lead to a major war that he doesn't even expect. I mean, he also seems to do a little bit of the opposite. So he has these meetings with the North Korean leader, uh, Kim Jong-un, and even though the threat seems to remain, and as recently as this morning, the New York Times reports that there's continued activity uh, in North Korea. Even, even more than before. Even more than before. And I don't know what the reaction has been, and maybe there'll be a reaction between now and the time that this podcast drops. But in some ways, Trump has taken the opposite approach of what you've described in history. So rather than take a small incident and blow it up into a big one to cause a war, he is taking in some measure, uh, real threats and dismissing them and just proclaiming that there are no more missiles coming and that there's peace and that he solved the problem. 
Have you seen that before? Uh, well, given the choice between the two, I sure would rather see that. But what I am worried about is that he will do all sorts of things for politics that we haven't seen with other presidents. The magnitude of the lies, uh, the exploitation of our armed forces. What I'm worried about is he might remember, for instance, that in the wake of the Persian Gulf War, George H.W. Bush's poll ratings went up to 90%. And if, you know, again, we're totally speculating, but if you're Donald Trump and you're feeling unloved and your political situation is getting out from under you, you know, one one way of hauling it back, I hope he does not think in these terms, might be to use military force. I hope it never happens. What are the odds in the lead up to the 2020 election, Donald Trump bombs Canada? Uh, and, and maybe given his misuse of history, bombs Canada because, as he said earlier, he thinks that Canada was our chief enemy in the War of 1812. So he's retaliating, except for it's only about two centuries late. Right, look, there could be a caravan in Ottawa. You don't know. Right, that. a caravan from Ottawa that, that's threatening, <laughs> threatening northern Michigan, which voted for him in the Electoral College in 2016. So he feels personally threatened. Let's talk about a couple of other things that you have given strong opinions about in recent times. So last week we saw what it, you want to call it a firing or resignation, it's, which I guess it's a forced resignation of Jeff Sessions. I think you said that what happened with Jeff Sessions was 10 times worse than Watergate. I said it was 10 times worse than Nixon if this is going the way it looks. And what I meant by that is putting someone in like Whitaker as an acting attorney general who has declared himself as being opposed to the Mueller investigation. If you were worried about a president obstructing justice, and I think that's what it would be by shutting down this investigation, that's why this attorney general was appointed or this acting attorney general. That's something we never saw Nixon do. What's funny about all of this, and I go back to the theme of your analysis about how we make mistakes in day-to-day -day judgment that are not borne out by history, is it depends on how the, the bad decisions turned out. So I don't know what the press was saying, but I imagine in 1961, there were some people who were not pleased that the president of the United States, John Kennedy, appointed his actual brother, at age, I think, 35, to be the attorney general. Oh, many people were displeased, including the Democratic Speaker of the House, Sam Rayburn, who and they should have told been. JFK not to do it. And also, as you know, a law was passed by Congress later that decade yes. called the Bobby Kennedy Law, so it would never happen again. But if you walk around you know, um, a history class, history has not looked that unkindly on that act, even though it was probably a bad idea, should never have happened, can never happen again, and that law was passed. So how do we know for certainty that some of these decisions with respect to Jeff Sessions and Whitaker and others are as terrible as they look in the moment? Well, some things I think are pretty clear in real time. For instance, the Saturday ma uh, night massacre Nixon should not have done. And if the appointment of Whitaker does result in you know, stopping the Mueller investigation and what Rudy Giuliani predicted that Trump would try to use executive privilege to conceal the Mueller report. Uh, there are some things that you don't need for decades, and I think that's one of them. And also, I, I think, Preet, if people like you or me, if we feel strongly about this and we don't talk about these things in real time, doesn't help very much four decades later when I think the survival of our democracy is in real question. Do you think that? I do. And what's the greatest threat to it? 
Uh, I think the greatest threat is, you know, what Mueller was hired to investigate, which is at least the possibility that the sitting president of the United States has a possible covert relationship with Russia, has or had a hostile power. That is something that goes so far beyond Nixon, I can't begin to tell you. Now putting on your historian hat again, are there things that you're concerned about that are happening at the moment with respect to transparency or the keeping of records that you think will make it difficult for people like you and others to make an assessment about what was going on? Certainly I am. I'm particularly worried with Donald Trump because of the reports that we've gotten that things are destroyed, which would be illegal if that happens. There are laws to preserve presidential papers. It's a more general problem that even goes back beyond him because, for instance, in this book, when I write about Franklin Roosevelt, let's say, a lot of people around Roosevelt kept diaries. His wife wrote these great letters, Eleanor. For instance, there's one line in one of her letters. She says, more and more, I think that Franklin is a great man, but he treats me like a stranger. You know, people wrote letters in those days that told you so much. Nowadays, we've got emails and we've got some memoranda of conversations, but it's not the same thing. I mean, I learned more than anything else about LBJ from these almost 700 hours of his secret tapes. They tell you what he was saying in private and the emotion in his voice. Problem is that nowadays, a new president, whether it's Donald Trump or anyone else, they're told two things on the first day in office, if not before, usually by their White House counsel. Number one, keep as few records as possible because they might be leaked to a media organization or there might be a special prosecutor. You don't want those things to exist. So the result is that modern presidents, even not just Donald Trump, they don't keep these records. And it's going to lead to the ultimate cover-up because people like me, three or four decades later, will not have the ability to get into a president's head and figure out what was really going on. You'll have to rely on Omarosa. Omarosa or and other Michael people Cohen. who are right. writing press releases. And uh, it's, it's, it's not a very happy prospect. You've written about the importance of branches being independent from each other. We've talked about Congress versus the presidency. But there's also that third branch that, that Matt Whitaker at some point called the inferior branch. I don't think that's how it's described in the Constitution. No. But there should be independence of the court as well. Which I am deeply worried about. And in particular, with the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh, how deep is your worry there? Uh, very deep for a couple of reasons. First of all, this was a vacancy that Donald Trump created by most accounts on his own, or at least hastened by using his relationship with Anthony Kennedy's son, by what we're hearing, who was his banker, which is already a relationship that's a little bit closer, I think, than comfort would require, to talk to Kennedy and perhaps encourage him to leave the court earlier with a promise. And again, we're relying on reports, and maybe the reports are wrong. But if the reports are right, on the promise that you know he would appoint a successor that Anthony Kennedy might be happy with, even one of his former clerks. So Brett Kavanaugh was appointed. And the way that happened makes me even more worried because at the time that Kavanaugh got into his troubles, as you know, he spent a lot of time at the White House, a lot of time with Trump's political advisors, if not Trump himself, who essentially, I assume, said this is the way this is done. Tell us your most potentially damaging secrets so that we can protect you in the hearings. I hope it didn't happen this way. But the point is that because of what happened in that confirmation, 
I think he is closer to the president who appointed him than most justices in history that I can think of. Although there's an example that you've written about with respect to President Johnson, Lyndon Johnson. More than one. And Abe Fortas. Absolutely. A negative example. Abe Fortas was Johnson's crony. Johnson put him on the court, I believe, as almost a spy for Johnson on the court, spent a lot of time with Fortas, and I'm sure he asked him what's going on on the court. You know, if I do a bill such and such a way, is it less likely to be declared unconstitutional? He even used Justice Fortas to write his speeches and to help him choose bombing targets in Vietnam. Totally inappropriate. Can we just pause? Can we just pause on that? Sure. Because that's astonishing. I don't, I don't even have a comment about it because because I've, I've read I've read that. And the idea that a sitting Supreme Court justice was helping to choose military targets in Vietnam is something that came to light when? Uh, came to light years later. Uh, there is evidence of it in the Johnson Library. You see photographs, for instance, of LBJ dealing with the Detroit riots in 1967. And guess who's in the Oval Office leaning across his desk uh, advising him? Justice Fortas shouldn't have happened. So doesn't that a little bit suggest to defend Donald Trump again, which is not my usual practice? Yeah, I'm really enjoying watching this, Preet. This is, <laughs> this is a new experience. <laughs> I just want to put things in perspective. Look, I'm horrified by everything going on. Of course. Here's the problem as I see it. There were various presidents who made mistakes, whether it's an overly close relationship with a Supreme Court justice or exaggerating an incident to take us into war or not having a good enough view of the Constitution or putting people in internment camps. And Trump defenders can point to each of those things, and I get it. And to say, well, what is happening here, this particular thing is not as bad as this other thing that happened 75 years ago. I think the problem is that that this president, as far as I can see, without the benefit of the passage of time, is that he's deficient in all of the areas at the same time. And so it may be true, Lincoln was not perfect, FDR was not perfect, Truman was not, Obama was not, no one is, but the pure aggregation of issues, lack of empathy, lack of understanding of history, lack of character, all those three things that you said are equal and essential are all lacking dramatically here, and maybe that's the difference. I think that's true, and in terms of the Supreme Court specifically, and I think also more generally, you know, if you or I were talking two or three years ago before Donald Trump came to office— And let's say we were talking about Abe Fortas. I think you or I would have said two or three years ago, those are terrible negative role models for justices in American history. People realize that now and we're not likely to see that ever again, or at least in our lifetime. He's shattering one democratic standard after another. And on the court, what I'm terrified by is this. There's a very serious chance that Trump cases will come up to this court. And those cases and how they're resolved could determine, I think it is not too much to say, if you and I are living in a democracy five or 10 years from now, or our children are. And in 1974, wonderful example, U.S. v. Nixon came to the Supreme Court. Nixon had appointed, what, four of those justices, including the chief justice? Nixon cynically assumed that at least some of them would vote in his favor out of a feeling that they owed him. And instead, it was eight to nothing. And one of, one of those justices recused himself, just as he should have, William Rehnquist, because he had been appointed by Nixon earlier to the Justice Department. That's the way it's supposed to happen. What I'm worried about is that 
That may not happen this time, and it could have devastating consequences. I hope I'm wrong. We're running out of time, so I thought I'd mention sort of at the other end of the spectrum of what you do is social media. You've written this great book that's 589 pages long. It's right in front of me. But you also are prolific in the shorter medium of Twitter. And uh, I've encouraged people to follow your Twitter feed, and I do it now. I say you should do two things after you listen to this. You should buy Michael Beschloss's new book, and you should follow him on Twitter. And among the things you, you put on Twitter are these exquisite photographs from history. I don't, I don't know where you get them from, but I love it. So explain to us why, in addition to you know writing lengthy scholarly works on the sweep of history, you go on this uh, sinkhole of Twitter. <laughs> and, and I must say, I recommend Preet's uh, Twitter feed too, which I've uh, been on for a long time and I love and is excellent. One thing I do particularly, as you know, is these historical photographs. And the photographs sometimes tell you as much, but there's not much of a way to use them because, you know, you do a book like mine, maybe you can put in 20 or 40 photographs, something like this. But oftentimes they can tell you something about current events. For instance, as we speak, we have just been through the weekend in which Donald Trump used rain as a reason not to take his helicopter to honor American soldiers in France. You can argue maybe it was for safety reasons. Maybe he didn't want to go and used rain as an excuse. So I put up a photograph of JFK and Charles de Gaulle in 1961 honoring American troops in American and allied troops in Paris in the rain and de Gaulle's uniform is almost soaked. And I just put it up without comment, saying what it was. And it got, I think, 30,000 retweets and 90,000 likes. People sort of get it. History can tell you something about the times that we're living through. That's called shade, Michael. <laughs> right. You shade do, is the short answer. <laughs> you, do it, you do it very well. Thank you. Michael Beschloss, congratulations on the book. Thank you for this lesson on history and also on current events. Thank you. I've loved our talk and I admire you, Preet. Thank, Thank you, you, sir. So I want to end the show, tell you about something that you may not have caught in the news and is right in the heartland of what we talk about on the show and what I think is so important in the country. And that is people who decide to speak up, whether they're conservative or liberal, for things that are more important than party and more important than ideology. And one of those things, as you know, near and dear to my heart and to your hearts, is the rule of law and checks and balances. And it turns out that on the eve of the annual convention of the Federalist Society, which is a conservative sort of legal thinking group that has played a role in recommending Supreme Court justices, including Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch, on the eve of their convention, a group of highly conservative, well-respected, thoughtful lawyers, again, ideologically conservative, have decided to form a new group, which is called, and you're going to love the name, Checks and Balances. It was formed in part by George Conway, who is a well-respected lawyer, who you may know because he is married to Kellyanne Conway, who works for the President of the United States. And the list of lawyers is very significant. If you have any doubt about that, look at the Twitter feed of Ben Wittes, friend and, and former guest on the show, who tells you how significant this list of folks is. There's Oren Kerr, who's a respected scholar. There's Paul McNulty, who's a former uh, Deputy Attorney General at the Justice Department. There's Tom Ridge, who's a former Republican governor in Pennsylvania. There's Peter Keisler, who was once upon a time the acting attorney general in the Bush administration. And the list goes on and on. And so I just want to 
read you their mission statement, which is worth hearing. It says, we are a group of attorneys who would traditionally be considered conservative or libertarian. We believe in the rule of law, the power of truth, the independence of the criminal justice system, the imperative of individual rights, and the necessity of civil discourse. We believe these principles apply regardless of the party or persons in power. We believe in a government of laws, not of men. We believe in the Constitution. We believe in free speech, a free press, separation of powers, and limited government. We have faith in the resiliency of the American experiment. We seek to provide a voice and a network for like-minded attorneys to discuss these ideas, and we hope that they will join with us to stand up for these principles. That's a mission statement I could have signed. That's a mission statement that Larry Tribe could have signed. That's a mission statement that we should all appreciate. And it says something, A, about the state of affairs we have in the country now, that a group of conservative lawyers have to state what should be basically the credo of every thinking person in the country, lawyers and non-lawyers alike. And I want to applaud George Conway and the other folks who have joined this group. It's an important time, and I look forward to hearing what they have to say. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Michael Beschloss. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Kat Aaron, Henry Malofsky, Courtney Harrell, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. And goodbye and thanks to Chris Berube. All the best. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, Vinay Basti, and Tamara Sepper. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.